Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast, where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. I'm Jerome Madison, Vice President of Provider Relations at Trapello and one of the hosts of the Precision Medicine Podcast. And today I have Hannah Mamushka, founder of Alva 10, and we'll be talking how to improve the perceived market value of diagnostics and truly move it to the forefront of precision medicine. Hannah, thanks for being a guest and welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast. Jerome, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us about your background. I know about your background. We've worked together in the past, even before precision medicine uh, was not known as precision medicine, but share with us your background and what inspired your vision to create your company, Alva 10. So my background, I'm a molecular biologist by training. I started out in the lab. I worked at NCI. I worked for a couple of small pharma companies that got acquired by Big Pharma. I worked on a drug called Velcate for a number of years, which is a targeted therapy. And I really saw the evolution of what we now think of as precision medicine being the ability to use biology to develop drugs that are targeted to specific molecular mechanisms within patients. And I also saw that we had the technology to identify those patients and that we're not really using it. And so I transitioned my career to the business side about 12 or 15 years ago to really get a better handle on how we could drive technology into our healthcare system. And what I've really observed is that one of the biggest hurdles towards getting technology accepted and used for patients within our healthcare system is reimbursement. And so I founded Alva 10 three years ago to broker better relationships between health insurance companies and diagnostic developers who have the technology that can really impact healthcare. Yeah. We've shared for years, diagnostic testing in oncology has the great potential to save patients valuable time in finding a right drug that works for them, saving money because we, as it's been stated by many healthcare professionals, the most expensive drug is the one that doesn't work, right? And also saving patients from excessive or unnecessary toxicity. Yet you express in your writings that payers still undervalue these diagnostic tests. In fact, you make a statement in one of your articles, you call diagnostics a downward cycle of low value leading to poor precision medicine. That's a strong statement. So explain a little bit what you mean by that. Sure. You know, and I think it's a, I think anytime there's a downward cycle, there's an opportunity for it to go up. And that's really what we're, we're trying to do at Alva 10 is show really what the value in diagnostic technology could be. But if you think about now that you have diagnostic tests that are paid at between $100 and $200, guarding access to drugs that are $150 to $250,000. That is an enormous disparity in value when the access to the drug is completely predicated on that diagnostic test. That diagnostic test inherently has value, but it's not being paid for in the market. And what this does is this really creates a missed opportunity for additional diagnostic tests to break into the market and impact patient care. Even outside of oncology, no patient wants to go on a therapy that they're not going to respond to or have such a severe adverse event that, you know, the adverse event is worse than the disease that they're being treated for. But for the majority of targeted therapies that are on the market today, there are no associated diagnostic tools to stratify those patients. Yeah. I mean, do you think that the lack of payer support kind of discourages innovation of these tests and in, in involving precision medicine? 
Well, I think that both parties are at fault, frankly. You know, the diagnostic companies generally approach payers with a fully baked test because that was how they were taught to enter the market. Historically, diagnostic companies, just in order to apply for a CPT code through the AMA that would allow them to eventually get paid, they had to launch their test onto the market. And that test then had to be used by, quote, many labs. And so that taught diagnostic developers to rush onto the market as quickly as possible so that you can apply for your CPT code so that then you can wait the 18 months it would usually take in order for you to get paid on that code. And so what diagnostic developers have been taught to do is wait to generate robust data until you're on the market fighting for coverage. And so if you think about that from the payer perspective, what that means is you have all of these diagnostic developers essentially beating down your door for payment for something that they would admit isn't fully validated and doesn't have maybe enough data behind it to support that. And what the diagnostic industry has seen is that has translated into poor coverage into low value and into a fee-for-service-based reimbursement system that doesn't really allow for innovation. And when I say allow for innovation, it's very difficult to get paid on a cost-plus model, but be expected to generate the same level of data that pharma generates when pharma gets paid based on the value that the drugs provide to the market. I've seen you in action when it comes to someone with opposing viewpoints that say big pharma companies should have control of developing companion diagnostics since, after all, it's their drug that will ultimately deliver the beneficial outcome. I've not seen many people take on that perspective as well as you have. So what do you say to those people who believe that pharma companies should have control of developing diagnostics instead of, you know, laboratories controlling their own destiny? So, you know, I'm not anti-pharma. I think some of the innovation that has happened in pharma, especially over the past decade, has been absolutely incredible. I think that there are new therapies that are extending and changing and improving lives. And I think that when they work, they're absolutely worth it financially. But I also think that it's not in pharma's business interest to develop tools to shrink their market, particularly if the regulatory agencies aren't going to require them to. And I think that for there to be a robust diagnostic market, the diagnostic market has to be able to stand on its own feet, develop its own tools, and establish itself in a market in a way that allows diagnostic tests to be paid. You know, and you know, the example that I talk about a lot when people talk about companion diagnostics is KRAS and the use of KRAS testing with EGFR therapies. So if you remember way back when the first targeted therapies in oncology were coming out, the pharma companies that were developing EGFR therapies submitted their data to the FDA and the FDA said, okay, looks good. But based on this data, you really need to go and develop a companion diagnostic to identify patients who have mutant KRAS. Because it's clear from this data that patients who have mutant KRAS are not going to respond to the EGFR therapies. Okay. The pharma companies commissioned two large diagnostic companies, Roche and Kyogen, to develop diagnostic tests to detect the presence of mutant KRAS. But the test is pretty small. It's not very comprehensive. It only looks at mutant KRAS on codons 12 and 13. And if you look at NCCN guidelines, ASCO guidelines, AMP guidelines, pretty much every cancer body that puts out clinical guidelines, you'll see that the guidelines state that you should actually look at four codons on KRAS, four codons on NRAS, as well as BRAF and PI3K. But the pharma companies are not incentivized for that 
comprehensive diagnostic test to be a companion diagnostic with their drug since the FDA didn't require it. And this disparity between the KRAS IVD companion diagnostic and the extended RAS testing that's in guidelines means that patients are overtreated by about 28% when they're treated with the IVD. It's in the interest of the patients, the payers, and the diagnostic companies to have the most robust diagnostic test. It allows the diagnostic labs to make an argument for value. It allows the payers to not pay for therapies that are ineffective and adverse events that are unnecessary. And it allows the patients to have a better shot of going on a therapy that they're going to benefit from. That may not all be in the interest of the pharma company. For those who who may not know, you write articles and you speak on the topic of you know, the value of diagnostics and, and helping to improve the perceived value of molecular diagnostics. You write for the Journal of Precision Medicine, and you wrote a fascinating article on the role of pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, and the amount of control and, quite frankly, power they have to dictate which drugs are prescribed. But in the era of precision medicine and highly specialized drugs, you suggest they're not equipped to serve their customers And of course, their customers are the insurance companies and employers. So why is that? And what is a potential solution for it? So I think diagnostic companies and PBMs would work well together. You know, right now, PBMs make deals based on pricing and volume discounts that they can get from the manufacturers of drugs that then they bundle and pass on to their customers, which are the insurance companies and large employer groups. And for the most part, especially outside of oncology, they're looking at all drugs as being equivalent. So if a drug, if you have a disease like multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis, for example, where you have a number of drugs, all of them being targeted therapies, but none of them having significant superiority over another in terms of clinical efficacy, and none of them having any diagnostic tools right now to stratify patients, the PBMs are making deals based on pricing, based on volume discounts that they can get around pricing. And so if you take rheumatoid arthritis, for an example, what you end up with is pharma companies making a strategic decision to offer certain discounts for certain drugs to drive volume of those drugs into the market that may have nothing to do with the efficacy of the drug. And so this has been well published in rheumatoid arthritis, patients' first-line biologic therapy is an anti-TNF inhibitor at least 90% of the time, despite the fact that anti-TNF inhibitors, these are drugs like Humira and Emeril and Remicade, only work about 32% of the time in patients in which they're prescribed. And there are multiple other classes of drugs that have similar response rates, but the PBMs have put anti-TNF therapies on the top of the formulary in the absence of a diagnostic tool to stratify. Now, if there were diagnostic tools that would stratify patients for response to each of those classes, that would be a very different conversation, both for the PBMs and the insurance companies, with regards to in what order those patients receive drug. Yeah, you made a powerful statement in that precision medicine is more than just cancer care. It involves many different diseases. In your conversations with payers, how are they responding to that? Because you just mentioned anti-TNF therapy. You know, what are other diseases that you see that they're interested in or innovation coming down the pipeline to expand precision medicine to other disease states? I think it's been really eye-opening for them. And they really see it as a potential opportunity because 
we all talk about precision medicine in oncology for a variety of reasons, but precision medicine exists in every disease. Every drug that has been developed over the past 30 years is a rationally designed molecule that hits a specific pathway within a specific disease biology. And so there's enormous opportunity to use diagnostic technology to stratify patients for response prediction, for adverse event prediction across virtually every disease. If you look at multiple sclerosis and you look at all of the different drugs that are approved in each class of multiple sclerosis, patients can start out with nine options at the beginning of their disease journey. And the physicians really don't have any tools to determine which drug the patients should start with. And so patients are treated with an initial therapy and they don't respond more than 60 or 70% of the time. So then they moved on to another therapy. And if they don't respond to that drug, they move on to another therapy. And this is extraordinarily expensive, not just in terms of dollars, but in terms of disease progression. Because if you have a progressive disease like MS, like rheumatoid arthritis, where your body, where your immune system is attacking your joints or where you're seeing deterioration in your muscles, you don't have time to waste on ineffective therapies, which is why we need more diagnostic tools in the market to be able to assist physicians in determining which patients should go on which therapies. Here at Trapello, we're leading the conversation to greater access and scale of precision medicine by eliminating financial and administrative burdens like prior authorization. You work with payers in your conversation with insurance companies. What are their concerns? With paying for a genomic test? And do they see a future where diagnostic companies are reimbursed consistently at profitable rates to encourage innovation and new development? They do. You know, I think, I think the conversation is changing. I think there is starting to be an understanding that diagnostics provide an opportunity for payers to see better outcomes in their patients. One of the things that they are concerned about, which is why I think Trapello is such a fascinating company, is the ability for insurance companies to see that a test is used, see what the data from that test provides, and then see how the physician uses that data in the management of their patients. Because, you know, in our in our work with the payers, we've heard it's such a challenge for them to understand that they're paying for certain diagnostic tests, and then they don't know how that data is being used or if that data is being used correctly. And I think that there have been some assumptions that, you know, all patients are getting treated up to guideline standards and all physicians are following the testing that they should be following. And then when they start to get into the data, they find that that's really not true. And part of this is physician education. Part of it is access to diagnostic testing. Part of it is turnaround time when a patient needs to be treated. But the ability to follow the continuum of care and manage that data and understand how diagnostic testing is actually impacting their patients is really critical for the uptake and utilization of diagnostics. You have been in the precision medicine industry for a long time. You remember, I mean, those were the early days where we had to take fresh tumor specimens from surgery and vitro assays. And I, I, I distinctly remember physicians calling it snake oil. Like, you know, this is biomarker-directed therapy. That's crazy. If it was, you know, anything special, we'd have done it years ago. It's a tough business, to say the least. But the re another reason why I have great respect for you is because you were a college athlete. 
Specifically, you ran track, which to me is one of the toughest sports. So how has your competitive spirit helped you stick it out in this business? Well, now I'm a marathon runner, which I guess means I like to just continue pursuing things and I I have the ability to just stick to it. You know, running really clears my head. It helps me think and it keeps me sharp, both physically and mentally. It's a long road, especially starting a company and you have to have the endurance and the mental fortitude to just put your head down and keep going. And I think that has actually helped me tremendously over the past three years. Outstanding. For those out there who want to connect with you, do you have social media platforms, whether it's LinkedIn or other, and give them your website so they can connect with you? Sure, absolutely. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter. Our website is alva10dx.com. And we are actively working with both payers and diagnostic companies. And we would love to hear from you. Absolutely. We thank Hannah Mamushka of Alva 10 and of course, all of our listeners for joining us today. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. And don't forget, you can download full transcripts of today's episode at precisionmedicinepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, you probably know someone else who would too. So please tell them. They'll thank you. And so will we. Hannah, thank you for delivering good stuff and being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Jerome.